We're going to pray for TJ and his family. They cannot get a break. TJ's the music leader. He, they just keep getting one sickness after another. And their youngest got, what's that, RSV? Yeah, yeah. RSV, is that right? Uh, so we're going to pray for them. Uh, here's our, our text, though, for praying today. And we're going to pray for the students out at the fall conference. Uh, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Uh, and then right before it, it talks about having many deliverances or many salvations. It's an awkward way of speaking, isn't it? It's like, well, wait, I thought we had one at the cross. And uh, absolutely, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the the epic, ultimate, cosmic salvation. And because of that, you get many, many salvations in the day. Because of the ultimate deliverance, there are many, a multiplicity of many deliverances in your life. And that's why you have a prayer like this. Oh, give me a many deliverance because of the ultimate one. Now, their ultimate one was coming out of Egypt. Ours is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you need a mini salvation or a mini deliverance or a mini resurrection, of course you do. And of course you should ask for it. And of course we should pray for them. And that's what's happening here. So let's do that together. Lord, we ask um, for a mini deliverance. And for some of us, it's like on the tip of their tongue. They can't wait to tell you about it and ask for it. For others of us, we're like, oh, I don't, I, I've never thought this way before. What, what does that mean? Lord, help us now to talk to you about having a mini deliverance. And Lord, we want to pray for uh, others, those we know, those we do life with, our family, uh, children, spouses, friends, extended family, parents, siblings, community groups. Uh, we want to pray for TJ and his family and ask that uh, their season of being wiped out by illnesses would come to an end. Uh, they're worn out, uh, worn out from worrying. Uh, about a baby with RSV, and we ask that um, the steroids work, uh, that you heal little Samson and give them some rest. We're so grateful for the music team to be able to adjust so quickly and work so well. We thank you for all of those that serve and volunteer that way. We thank you for the sound uh, people, that team, and how they work tirelessly uh, with a system that needs, like, when we have the money, we're getting a new sound system. Uh, so, Lord, uh, work that out. Continue to work that out. Thank you for the team that does their utmost and their best at that end. And, Lord, we pray now for those that we personally know that need a mini-deliverance.
And then, Lord, finally, we pray for uh, this town because this is where you have us. We pray that uh, you would use us to bring the ultimate deliverance to this town, the ultimate deliverance to our friends and our neighbors, the ultimate deliverance to our, our classmates and our teammates, the ultimate deliverance to those that we get to know and make friends with for the first time, those we've been developing friendships with for a long time. Oh, Lord, we ask and we pray for those. We ask that your ultimate deliverance would come to them, that their need, that their weakness uh, would be the gateway by which they see they need a deliverer. They need a savior. Uh, they need someone who's big enough and did handle their sin completely, victoriously. Someone who's big enough and did handle an ability to live a right, obedient, flourishing good, beautiful, and true life. There's only one person that did that. Lord, may we bring this kind of good news to those that live their whole life trying to do something they cannot do, which is justify their own existence. Lord, grant the ultimate deliverance, our one defense, our righteousness, and Lord, we thank you that we get to do that together. So we want to pray for this church, that this is a team, a gospel team, as we've been learning about in Philippians, that we actually get to do this together. We get to learn how to build our own messy lives and relationships around you and your salvation. And we get to do it together as a mission to be sent out and see the ultimate deliverance happen. So Lord... Uh, bring, continue to tighten, strengthen, encourage the team of us. Continue to build friendships and relationships among us. Uh, continue to help us connect to a mission that's bigger than us, bigger than our preferences, bigger than our ways of seeing things in all aspects of church. Lord, would you grant this in Jesus' name? Amen. Okay. We are in Philippians uh, 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 today. So here's how we're going to begin. If you were a church planner, let's say, or you're a first-time pastor, uh, a church leader, and you've come to a town, and you're going to plan it, or you're going to pastor it, and you want to grow it. You want to build it into a megachurch, okay? Uh, beyond, uh, now, you're going to do this, but you're going to do it beyond a Taylor Swift-type music production, we're not, of course, that's always involved in a megachurch, but we're not talking about that. We're not talking about too about, of course, there will be incredible ministries. When you have a megachurch, you just have phenomenal ministries. You have ministries to connect everyone from cradle to seniors and everything in between. And everybody connects relationally. And there's, there's incredible opportunities to serve and ministries and all that. So beyond that, if you were going, well, let's get beyond the expert-like uh, sound equipment, and all of that kind of stuff. The, the TED Talk communicators, expert communicators, beyond all of that. Put all that aside. What would you preach and teach to pack people in? What would be the message that would reach the multitudes? What does everyone Everyone want to hear. Paul calls it this way. He says, listen, he calls it the itching ears. And all of us have it. So if you're like, well, I don't have the itchy, you have the itchy ear. 
What is everyone itching to hear? Got it? Your answer? Okay. Sinclair Ferguson's a famous Scottish theologian. It's unfair of those dudes that have those accents. I think they're just good communicators because of the accent, in all honesty. That's my opinion. Uh, he's one of the most respected pastor scholars out there. So, like, he's a genuine, like, professor, scholar, at the same time, very pastoral. All right, he's one of the most respected out there today. Uh, he's a popular author, speaker. Well, he's shocked. Our tradition's largest leadership gathering several years ago. He addressed our tradition, the largest leadership gathering of our denomination, of our tradition. At one time, he addressed them and he shocked them. <laughs> he tells everyone this. He says, the Protestant Reformation didn't go far enough in our tradition. Now remember, this is a bunch of pastors and ministers in this tradition. And he's saying that the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, didn't go far enough. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And he says, in all Protestant traditions, it mostly didn't go far enough. And we're all like, what? I mean, people are texting. It's buzzing. It went all over the place. My brother's texting me. Are you hearing this? <laughs> so the answer is why. Why didn't it? And this is the answer. Because the good news of Jesus and his salvation did not fully evangelize your view of the Christian life. What? He says, the gospel, Jesus and his salvation, hasn't fully informed, reformed, shaped, killed and put back together your view of doing Christianity. Your view of sanctification is the doctrinal word. Now everybody's like, I'm going to give you his three bombshell quotes, okay? Number one, quote, the older son's disposition. Now, when he talks about the older son, there are two lost sons in Jesus' story of the world. Y'all remember that? Jesus is telling the story of the world. He's telling the story of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and he says, here's the story of the world. I'm going to talk about two sons, and there's an older son and a younger son, so he's talking about the older son here. When he talks about disposition, again, these guys are scholars, so they use big words like that. When you say disposition, you mean heart. When you say disposition, you mean the thinking, the feeling, the experiencing, and the desiring of your heart, okay? That's what he means. The older son's disposition, thinking, feeling, desiring, experiencing heart. The older son's disposition, which is, quote, all these years I have been slaving away for you and you never threw me a party. The older son's thinking, feeling, desiring, willing is I've always slave away for you, God. I slave away for you, God. He says this, that's the disposition towards God that is endemic to natural man. We are not delivered from it by the power of regeneration. In other words, when you become a Christian, it doesn't go away. You have within you, I will slave away for you, God. I slave away for you, God. It is injected into the hearts of Adam and Eve. And it's injected permanently into the fallen human condition. And it's injected and is the constitution of your human nature. You can't escape it. That's a bombshell quote, right? Number two, 
This, the slaving away for God, is the driving disposition of so many ministers and congregations today. Now remember, he's talking to ministers. And everybody's getting uncomfortable. And every church that's tuning in is absolutely like, not us. Remember this, and he says, he goes on to say, I can't, I'm not going to quote all of it, but he goes on to say, it affects the way you ministers handle the Bible. It affects the way you preach. It affects the way you teach. Slaving away for God. It affects the way you do pastoral care. Slaving away for God. It affects the way you see the mission of the church. Slaving away for God. It affects how you set up your programs and your ministry and your teams. Slaving away for God. And then it affects the churches because it affects the churches. Everybody expects slaving away for God messages. Everybody expects slaving away for God ministries. Everybody expects their greatest need is slaving away for God. It's an amazing quote. Here's the last one. It is easier to preach law than to preach grace. You have got to understand that. The law gives you more grip since by nature you have a legalistic heart. Dispositionally, thinking, feeling, experiencing, desiring, remember, heart. Dispositionally, it's just easier to do. There it is. More grip. It's just easier to do. What is everyone itching to hear? Colin and I talked about this, I think, last week, two weeks ago. If I was going to build a mega church, I would give you more grip. Because it's just easier to do, and it's what itching ears all of us want to hear. Whatever gives us more grip with God, or we could say, if we don't understand what that means, control. Everybody wants more control with God. Everybody wants more control with the Christian life. Everyone wants more control with their sin. Everyone wants more control with their suffering. Everyone wants more control with joy. Everyone wants more control in how to do this life change in this Christian life. Everyone wants more grip. Itching ears, it's what we want. So what are you itching to hear? Whatever gives you more grip. Whatever gives you more control, that's what everybody wants. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Let's see if that's what the Bible has for us. All right, so see that therefore? We had a therefore last week, didn't we? So that means... Last week was an implication of a big idea. This is the second implication of a big idea. What's the big idea? Well, that was in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. What is the local church, a gospel team? So Paul's big idea still so far is the church, the local church is a gospel team. Implication number one last week, therefore, well, what, what do you do? How do you become a gospel team? And the answer at that point was be a gospel team. Think less of yourself, think more of the name. So that was last week. So what's implication number two? Well, let's look at it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked, that just means messy, corrupt or twisted generation, that means you're curved in on yourself. So it's interesting, and it? it's saying you live in a messy, curved in on yourself, in other words, self-important people, generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and grant that this page, your word, becomes electric. It becomes energized. You shine on the page, as the Puritans would say. And so in such a way, Jesus, that you show up and we actually experience you at the text. Because what we're desperately needing is not more grip. What we're desperately need is a great Savior. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so what, how do you know if you have itching ears? Well, number one, you should just assume you do. I mean, the Bible would answer, you should know that you have itching ears. You should know that you come in with that nature. You should know that when you're a Christian, you still have that nature, that you have a nature that craves control. You have a nature that craves to have more grip on everything that has to do with your relationship with God, everything that has to do with the Christian life, everything that has to do with church, everything that has to do with your home and your family, your job, your work, your play, you come in that way, all right? But how do you know that it's going on in your life right now? How do you know you're seeking to have more grip on God than God himself? How do you know that you're seeking to have more control of the Christian life than the Christian life itself? Do you see difference? How do you know that you're seeking to control and have more grip on joy than just joy itself. And then let's go back to the whipping boy. How do you know that you want more grip and control in algebra than just algebra? How do you know that algebra just can't be algebra and be its own thing in its own good, beautiful, and true reality that you engage how do you know that you're not just treating, you're treating it that way instead of treating it as something that you control and get a grip on for something else? Do you see the difference? Put your job in there. Put your parenting in there. Put your marriage in there. How do you know that you're in the marriage and you're in the job and you're in your work for the sheer good, beautiful, and true reality of what it is and the person to love the person as opposed to getting a control on it and a grip on it for something else? How do you know that you're doing that? Answer, whenever you misread verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When you misinterpret that, you want and are involved in more grip, more control of your relationship with God, 
of the way you do the Christian life, of the way you do your marriage and your relationships, on the way that you see church and do church, on the way you walk onto a ball field and play, on the way that you do your music and perform, on the way you sit and try to read a book and enjoy yourself or watch a show on Netflix. It's a big deal. What is the meaning of verse 12? The most popular interpretation of verse 12 goes like this. God does his part, I do my part. Work out your own salvation. All right, so I become a Christian by grace. God does his part. Now, though, as a Christian, I grow by grace and some form or some strategy or some grip that activates God in my life. I do my part. God does his part, become a Christian. Now the Christian life is I do my part. God's grace plus some form, some strategy, some way of activating God. Now, depending on your tradition, you might have a different form or strategy. Like if you're in our tradition, it's doctrine and theology. If you're in another tradition, the way you activate God might be a personal experience or some access point or secret to the Holy Spirit. Or if you're in another tradition, it might be some ancient biblical principle, spiritual discipline in your life. Or if you're in the modern megachurch movement, this is dying. The megachurch movement is dying in one sense, but they built a ministry on biblical principles for this and biblical principles for that because that activated God in your life. See the, do you see how this works? But now there's a movement to go back to the mystics and to the ancient mystical experiences and the spiritual disciplines of the old people in the church, the dead people in the church, because that's how you activate God in your life. And then now there's also a movement going on. Well, we got to get back to the true church. Well, what's the true church? The church at Galatia, where Paul said anathema. The true church in Corinthians, where Paul says stop sleeping with other people's wives in church. What's the true church? So you see how this works? God does his part, I do my part. This interpretation, God does his part, I do my part, is why you're so spiritually exhausted. It's why you're so spiritually anxious. It's why you're so spiritually depressed. Martin Lowe-Jones, when he was preaching in the 19... Well, through World War II, 50s, 60s, 70s, he died in the 80s. He used to, one of the ways that he would do sermon preparation, or he would just, he would read texts, and then when something would strike him, he just would write it down. And he realized that over a year of things that were striking in the Bible were all under the topic of spiritual depression. And he's written one of the greatest books on spiritual depression out there. That's why, and one of the major reasons that he talks about spiritual depression is this dynamic we're talking about right now. God does his part, you do your part. This interpretation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, God does his part, I do my part, is why 40 million people have de-churched. Because when you have grace plus you activating God, 
it creates underwhelming churches. It creates, oh, really? So I just really need to count the 10 when I'm angry. Oh, really? I just need to, like, write a love letter to my wife. Oh, really? I just need to, like, be more authentic. Oh, really? I just need to say more embarrassing things in the accountability group. Oh, re-. right? It's underwhelming. Absolutely <laughs> underwhelming. Oh, my word. See, I could talk this way because I come out of those traditions, just so you know. This interpretation, God does his part, I do my part, is why 10 million people have de-churched. So you got 40 million people that have de-churched because there's no need. They, they saw no animating need in the church. I don't need church. My family doesn't need church. And 40 million people during COVID and during the cultural chaos, they left the church and they never came back because they didn't miss it. What's there to miss? If you're going to hear more about how you activate God, there's nothing to miss. And then there's other 10 million people that this book says that they got casualtyed from the church. They got hurt by the church. They got hurt by church leaders, other Christians from the church. Well, why would that happen? Because when you have grace plus you activating God, that makes self-important people. Because whatever your form and strategy is of activating God is incredibly important. And now you're self-important. And now you hurt other people with it. Can I just say something on the side just so we have a little, like, breather? Grace alone produces loving people. It produces kind people. It produces people that just make friends even if they're not an extrovert. It produces people that are unshockable, that are able to sit and know what the human condition is like in them and the human condition in the person they're with and when the person's in need and is trouble, that they look at them and they listen and they hear this incredible tale of woe or something that's incredibly like shocking and they go, well, of course you do. Welcome to the human race. Now, let's talk about how Jesus and his salvation speaks to that. That's called grace alone. Not, okay, that's good. Now, here's how you're going to activate God in your life. See the difference? Uh, grace plus activating God produces pain points for other people. It also produces people in verse 14 who grumble and dispute. Verse 14. Do you remember grumbling? Look at that word grumbling. Where is it? There it is, grumbling. That's what goes on in the heart. So remember we got this will, we're going to look at this God's at work to will and to act. The willing, the thinking, the feeling, desiring. Grumbling is thinking, feeling, desiring in the heart. It's being discontent. Isn't that interesting? So grumbling is not, it can be a word. You might actually grumble outside, right? You might do it, but it's really speaking to your heart. You're so discontent that you're just unsettled and you see the world through all your discontent. And because you see the world, your heart, your thinking, your feeling, your experiencing in such discontent, you become a disputer. Now it goes public. Now you do it in your relationships and now you do it in your churches. How do you know if you're self-important? How do you know that you're doing this? You grumble. You're discontent. You dispute. You just openly argue with people. Now, 
That's not saying you don't disagree and have arguments. It's you're, you're arguable. You're a disputable person. See the difference? Now, grace alone produces kind people, people that think less of themselves and more of other people, people that are content so they're not grumbling, people that see people as messy because they see themselves as messy so they're not disputers. See the difference? This interpretation, God does his part, I do my part, is why we lack joy. It's why we lack rest. It's why we grumble, why we lack discontentment. It's why we go from one law to the next. It's why we find one biblical principle that worked for a while, then we go to another one. We find one spiritual technique that worked for a while, then we go to another one. We find one new church ancient practice and go to another one. We find one new access point to the Holy Spirit, then we go to another one. We find one new meaningful experience, encounter with God, and then we got to move on to another one. And we do it with everything over and over and over again, and that's why we do it. God does his part, I do my part. My part is always shifting. My part is always changing. My part is always endless. My part is never finished. It's never done. It's never over. So there's never rest. There's never joy. There's only weariness and heavy ladenness. Jason has a baby brother. He was baptized at church this day. It was a great day. It was a happy day, right? The family's driving home from church, but Jason is not happy. He is crying and crying and crying. His dad asked him three times, what's wrong, buddy? What's wrong? What's wrong, buddy? And finally, on the third try, Jason responds, that preacher said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home, and I wanted to stay with you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely love that. That's absolutely hilarious, right? I mean, I know that kind of situation happened in our house, and I'm the preacher. I know we're driving home, and it's like, Dad, just baptize those babies, and Dad, or Dad, Dad's the preacher. What's wrong with Dad? I know that happened. What wrecks Christian homes and Bible-believing churches the most? Sexual sin? No. God does his part, I do my part. What wrecks more friendships and communities? Selfishness? No. God does his part, I do my part. What wrecks more small groups and leadership teams and churches? Disunity? Divisiveness? No. God does his part, I do my part. What wrecks more institutions and cities and countries and cultures? Racism? The existential threat of global warming? No. Something does their part. I do my part. I want you to watch the flow of the text just because I have to prove it, because I know I have to prove it. Go up to verse 12. You've got 14 and 15 right there, right? 12 and 13 are the cause that produces verse 14 and 15, which is the effect. That's the grammatical flow of the text. That's the theological flow of the text. So even if we don't know what it means, if verse 12 and 13 mean God does his part and I do my part, okay, then it does mean if God does his part and I do my part, it is the activator that produces verse 14 and 15. It produces you 
not grumbling and disputing. It makes you blameless and innocent. Not just, just talking relationally. Obviously, he's not saying like you're blameless and innocent in your experience in this world. You are in Christ, but he's talking about you will relate to people relationally in certain instances. You'll be blameless in the way you just related to that person. You'll be innocent in the way you just related to that person or in a controversy. You were blameless. You were innocent. It will help you do that. And it will help you live your messy life and relationships in the midst of a messy and self-important generation. Right? And I want you to see, so 12 and 13 is the cause or the power that makes 14 and 15 happen. So if 12 and 13 don't happen, 14 and 15 don't happen. If there's no 12 and 13, there's no 15 and 14. Do you see how this works? There is a power in this text. It's in 12 and 13 that produces, accomplishes 14 and 15. Amazing. So we better know what it means. Does it mean God does his part, I do my part? One last look here. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. If there's no 12 and 13 in our life and in our church, there's no mission, there's no light in the world. If there's no 12 and 13 in your life and you're a husband, there'll be no 14 and 15 in light in your marriage. If there's no 12 and 13 as a parent, there will be no light in your parenting and in your home. See how this works? If there's no 12 and 13 at your job with you and how you're handling your job and how you're treating people in your job, there will be no light in the job. If we as a church don't have 12 and 13 together, we will not be a light in the world. Amazing. It's that simple. It's that profound. It's that powerful. So, what does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? I'm going to do a little Bible study. I'm not supposed to. All the church stuff tells you not to do that. But I'm going to do it. Let's go up to 12 and 13. See where it says work out your own salvation, right? What are you working out? Your own salvation. Thanks, Jeff. That was a great Bible study, right? Amazing. Man, Jeff, you're so insightful. Yep, work out your own salvation. Do you see it? Work out. What are you supposed to work out? Your own salvation. Well, what is salvation? Something that's already done. Do you see it? Work out something that's already done in your life. God did it all. God did it all. That's the point of the name that we looked at last week. That was the point that every knee will bow, every tongue, not only those by faith, but that means all the demonic world that hates him will bow before him because he's did it all. He won. It's over. It's finished. And because he did it all, work that out in your life. 
evangelize your life. Be a missionary in your life. Because God did it all, you now take that he did it all, which is loaded with divine power and divine life, because the Bible tells us so. And when people hear he did it all, and they hear this good news, and they hear this power, it's so powerful, and it's so full of divine life and divine power that Jesus in Romans says that he actually shows up in the message and says, Lazarus, come out. That Jesus actually shows up in the hearing of this good news and becomes present in the hearing of this good news and speaks and loves and forgives and justifies and calls and changes lives on the spot. Work that out into your life, the text is saying. Paul's saying, take what's already been done. Take this finished, accomplished salvation and work it into where you're stressed. Evangelize your stress. Bring the good news to your anxiety. Bring the good news to your marriage. Bring the good news to your parenting. Bring the good news to your disputing. Bring the good news to your grumbling. Bring the good news to your lack of joy. Bring the good news to the conflicts in your relationships. Bring the good news to your discontent. Bring it. Evangelize yourself. Work it out. Amazing. Pastors, church leaders, this means bring, work out. Notice it's present tense. Work out's present tense. So you never stop. Again and again and again. You just work it out. That's the rest of your life. Pastors, church leaders, work it out in your, your leadership. What's the vision of the church? Work it out with this. Work it out in the culture of the church. If you're a leader of a church, we want this kind of culture. We want grace culture. We want the power of God culture. We want, Jesus, you show up here? Well, that's what we're going to be about. Wait, you say you show up? And the people that bring good news carry the power of God for salvation for people? That's what we want to be about. Wait, we want to be relevant in the country. We want to be relevant in Waco. You want to be relevant? Be about the good news. It's the only thing relevant. Everything else is just, why go to church? I told you this over and over again. I would never be a pastor if my job was to give you a grip. Good night. All right. Do this in your pastoral care. What does it mean to work out salvation? That means pastoral care, which is called, the Puritans called it the cure of souls. The only thing that cures souls is what we're talking about right now. That's it. Now, there's good stuff in creation. You might need, you know, Dr. Hannah used to say to us, you know, he'd see, look at us and we were tired, exhausted, you know, and he'd say, some of you would drastically improve your spiritual life if you just got a good night's sleep. That's very true. And check your diet. Do you exercise? Of course, all of that stuff. But the place in your heart at the very bottom can only be reached by Jesus and his salvation. It can only travel down to that place and reach you. 
Only the power of the gospel can do that. Church, churches, church members, work out Jesus and your salvation. In your view of church, why does the church even exist? Does it exist for itching ears? Does it exist to give me more grip? Does it exist to give me more control? No. No. So set your expectations. So what should be your expectation? When you go to church, what should be your expectation? You know what it should be? Jesus shows up. It's where I get spoken back to life again. It's where my children get spoken back to life again. It's where Jesus shows up and he says to all of us, come out. Where Jesus shows up and he loves me on the spot because this is what he says he does through his good news. And we make friends, we're a community, and we're on a mission to bring good news, to work out this salvation, not only in our own life, but everywhere in this whole city. Work it out. All right. If working out is the Christian life, the gym is the gospel. I'm going to go work out today. Okay. Gospel gym's right over there. I'm going to go work out and pray. That's right. You're going to pray within that gospel gym. Well, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do a Bible study. Yep. In the gospel gym. Well, I'm going to go love people. Yep. In the gospel gym. Well, I'm going to go do my work because I'm a plumber. You bet. In that gospel gym. Well, I'm a coach. I'm a... Here's what happens. Fear and trembling is an Old Testament image of faith. That's what always kills me. It's like, work out your own salvation, but he tells you how right here with fear and trembling. That's an interesting way. Why didn't he say work out your salvation with, like, butt-gusting obedience? (laughs) Work out your own salvation with my 500-page discipleship manual. No, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's an Old Testament image. Do you know that every time God showed up in the Old Testament, Anytime he showed up, he showed up personally, he showed up powerfully, and he showed up to save Israel. And when that happened, awe and wonder. Do you remember the seas before them? And the chariots of the most powerful superpower in the world with the most technological military in the world coming down to wipe them out. They can't go backward, see. They can't go forward, see. They can't go backward because they're going to get, like, wiped out. And all of a sudden, God was present among them with mercy. He's with us. He loves us. He's merciful. And then all of a sudden, God is among them with power. Who is this God? Fear, trembling, awe, astonishment, faith. This can't be true. This is too good to be true. What does work out your own salvation with fear and trembling mean? It means God did it all. And I believe it. 
God did it all. And I believe. I believe in this area. I believe in that area. I believe in this relationship. I believe. All right, this is going to be a long one, but I'm going to wrap it up here. Many of you are thinking, does this mean I am simply passive? Does this mean I do nothing? I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, and I don't obey. Don't love others, don't go to church, don't do ministry. Did I leave anything out? Okay. Answer number one. God did it all, and I believe it is not nothing. It's everything. Just ask Jesus. Jesus is teaching about him being the bread of life, and he's teaching about uh, the works of God, and arguments break out. God does his part, I do my part. I guess they had that issue too, right? And they said to him, what must we do, Jesus? What must we do to do the works of God? Same stuff that happens today. Jesus said, this is the work of God. Do you want to know what the work of God is? Do you want to know what the greatest work of God is? Do you want to know what I'm calling you to do? Do you want to know what the Christian life is? Do you want to know what Christianity is all about? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Answer number two, it's not nothing. God did it all, and I believe it's not nothing. It's the only reason to read your Bible it's the only reason to pray. It's the only reason to obey. It's the only reason to love others. It's the only reason to go to church. It's the only reason to do ministry. God did it all means you don't go to the Bible to activate God. You go to the Bible because he activates you. Four. Let's go to the next one. It is God who works in you both to will and to work. Will, your heart, your thinking, your feelings, your experiences, your desires, and work, your doing, your relating, your activity. It is God who works in you. The text literally says, God is the one who works. God is the one who works. God is the one who works. Why does he work? Because he did it all. If he didn't do it all, then you better work. But if he's the one that did it all, he's now the one who works in you present time, right now. He's the one that now shows up in the working out of the gospel in your stress. He's the one who's at work right now in your life when you read the Bible. So you go to the Bible not to activate God in the Bible. You go to read the Bible, study the Bible, because that's where he activates you. It's where the one who works shows up. You pray not to activate God and get control on something. You pray because it's where he works in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one who's at work in you. He's the one who worked in you because he already did it all. If he didn't do it all, then you better get to work. You better get a grip. You better learn to activate God. If he didn't do it all, you better read your Bible to get a grip. You better pray to get a grip. You better be holy to get a grip. Instead of if he did it all, and now he's the one that works in you, you do it because it's good, beautiful, and true. You do it because he loves you. You do it because you love people. You do it because it's a great thing to do algebra. You do it because you love people and relational conflicts are not good for people. Do you see the difference? 
Jesus is the one who works in you because he's the one who did it all. You are now free to read your Bible by grace, not works. You're free to pray by grace, not works. You're free to obey by grace, not works. You're free to love others by grace, not works. You're free to do church by grace, not works. You're free. And I believe. Let me pray.